Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got a great show today. We've got Patrick Barrasso, and he's come a long way. He started off as a licensed clinical social work worker, and now he's the CEO, the co-founder of the Inbalance Continuum of Care. And he's a noted psychotherapist. He's got over 25 years of extensive training and experience in adolescent and adult substance abuse and mental health treatment. He's the heart and soul of the Inbalance programs. He's dedicated, he's got the direction and the commitment to helping adolescents and their families to come through addiction and co-occurring mental illnesses. He frequently presents at local and national conferences. He's presented at the U.S. Journal Training National Conference and the FACES Family and Addiction Conferences and Educational Seminars on a variety of adolescent treatment talkings. He got both of his degrees from the University of Arizona. He got his master's degree in social work in 1991. Then he went to work. He served as a juvenile detention officer, supervisor, probation officer, and learned a lot. And through that work in the legal system, he was inspired to work with adolescents who were struggling with mental health and substance abuse issues and their families to help get them back on a positive and productive path. We are so happy to have you join us today, Patrick. Thanks, Lee. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. So you started your private practice in 91. I cannot imagine the experience that you that you got being out on the streets as a juvenile detention officer. I, personally, that's the way I learn. Yeah, you know, it was, I started off, I mean, it was a really amazing opportunity because I was looking for a place to make a difference for young people. I knew that early on that that was a population that I was really drawn to. And so I started off as as a volunteer for kids that were first-time felony offenders that that either their fathers were incarcerated or dead. They didn't have dads. So it's kind of a really innovative way to help kind of set up a Big Brothers program for kids that were just at at the front end of the legal system, and it was that was nineteen eighty one actually so it was really at that point, having done that for about four months, that I realized that you know professionally everything in my life would sort of come to a point where I could help young people and young adults so um, and from there, you know being in the juvenile detention sort of seeing. I think the way that we treat young people in that system um, really inspired me to create a setting where kids could get treatment, get help, but always do it in a way that shows care and compassion. And uh, so those, those formative years professionally gave me a variety of opportunities to really see how I could make an impact both in the family and for the individual. Um, and so I'm super grateful. Some difficult years. I did some 
in-home therapy and, and that presented its, you know, innovative program, but its own set of challenges for folks that, uh, you know, were challenged day to day with being able to, you know, pay their electric bill. I was in homes in some cases that didn't have, um, utilities and, uh, you know, so there's a poverty in Tucson, like in many communities. Um, that people don't readily recognize. So, so trying to be able to resource those families um, and those kids and take all that into developing the model for what, what would almost 15 years later, 2004, become the foundation for Enbalance Academy, which is a therapeutic boarding school for young people that have mental health and substance abuse. And then that gave birth to a transitional living program that gave birth to a sober living continuum. So it's been one of the greatest honors of my life to serve this population and to help educate the field about how these young people with mental health and substance abuse and complex trauma and, you know, how they need us to show up in the best way possible. Well, and I think you made it, you brought up a couple of really good points, and that is in a lot of the homes, they did not have an active father. There was not a strong male influence. If that's the case, in most cases, the mom is trying to be the breadwinner and be the mom, and it's very, very difficult. And the environment that they're in does not support making educated, good choices. Yeah, and and Lee, it's 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 super interesting because in public mental health, um, I would say that that so many of those young people that I served, you know, they knew that they were in trouble, but often they didn't have the resources uh, financially. Uh, it was really hard to pull together the kind of supports that they needed in order to realize their full potential. So in 2000, you know, 96, we opened up an inpatient or an intensive outpatient and serves still the community of Tucson today. But then at the academy, these are families that have worked really hard and some of the great entrepreneurial spirit uh, that I, I value so much. And these young people come from relatively affluent situations. So the problem for young people sometimes in affluent situations is they can't, the, the family struggles with acknowledging that their child is, is in trouble. And yet, in some ways, their troubles are just as profound as those young people that had no resources. So those families sometimes have to organize around, you know, like not recognizing the depth of their trouble. And for those kids, they have a tough time acknowledging that I'm in trouble because a lot of the things that they would have occur where our lower economic kids have arrest and probation officers like me and, you know, back in the day, um, 
you know, those families can organize around protecting them from those consequences. So the kids that we get to serve now, um, you know, there's a great book, uh, a phenomenal book by Madeline Levine called The Price of Privilege. And it just sort of highlights in some more affluent situations um, that the challenges can be you know, similar to those that have nothing. So it's, uh, I'd say it's been uh, a real eye opener to kind of see how we can do some resourcing and bring families to the table in both settings, right? So in the public mental health, it was tough to get families engaged because of, you know, challenges to get to the treatment, to get to the groups, whether it was taking off work or you know, bus pass, whatever those challenges were. And in the same way, we have challenges that are different, um, but still organizing the family into being part of the solution um, uh, presents challenge in, on either side of that. And I, I feel strongly that it's a family disease and that if we can organize the entire family towards the solution, then we have sustainable and better outcomes. And that's what the data provides, and that's what my own experience provides. Well, what my own experience provides at the Brain Performance Center is that addiction is a brain disease. So many people come in and say, well, if they would just not make bad choices. Well, I don't think there's anybody out there that wants to become addicted to a substance. I think people start off, they self-medicate because they're trying to solve a problem or I mean some may start for recreational but their brain is is not wiring and firing the same way as other people's is you know and you you do something and you like it and that kicks off all that dopamine and that dopamine's a really feel good neurotransmitter and it gets those little nerve cells all confused it goes from you know oh i like that so I'll do it more and more and more. So that brain will kick out more and more dopamine. Then it goes from I like it to I want it to I need it. And by the time it gets to I need it, you've got an addiction problem. So I think, you know, coming at it is genetics. Brain waves are just as genetic as how tall you are or what color eyes you have. So coming at addiction as a family disease, I think is a great approach. Well, and I, um, I couldn't, um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that you know this leads into a really important topic, um, Lee, that we both are are absolutely on the same page on. Is if we recognize it as a brain disease, and I think the science is really clear. You know, there'll still be people that debate that, but I think for the most part, uh, Nora Valco, and I get her name often wrong, um, which is the head of NIDA, which is, a you know, the arm of our government that studies this, and she's a profound, um, uh, instrumental professional that has helped inform policy on substance abuse treatment, but she's absolute that it's a brain disease and if we can 
understand that, then we can start to take away some of the stigma of addiction, right? Because people see it as a moral failing or a characterological flaw. And I often talk to people about, have you ever sat with a heroin addict? Have you ever really understood and, and been in an alley with that person? Um, do you think anybody would choose that life? And the answer is no. And, and you're right. So we can kind of go back and say for our kids, you know, there was an early onset of use. And I often talk to parents about there's a crossroad. And we start to see at that crossroad, the majority of people that experiment with drugs and then go on and they don't become an issue. And the difference between those people and the person, you know, I have a, a really skilled therapist, one of the first ones that started to work for me in 1996, and she told her story, and it was such a compelling story. And she said, you know, I was a world-class equine person, and me and my best friend won a competition, and they had a little bit of champagne, and they offered it to us. And we went behind the uh, barn, and, you know, my friend drank it and was completely disgusted. And I drank it, and I think, again, I think she was 10 or 11, and she said, and I knew at that point I got a little bit of a neurological payoff and I knew at that point I was going to do whatever it took to get that feeling for as long as I could now those two kids kind of same socioeconomic profile look similar similar life experience so what was different about their experience and I think me and you both agree that was what was different is the brain disease. One had it, one didn't. And if we can think about it, and I know you do, as the brain lacking a stop and go mechanism that for most people, when they eat too much food, they feel full. But think of, you know, the addicted person or the person that suffers from substance abuse there is no stop mechanism. There is no enough. And so it's a fundamental principle, and that is explained through brain science. And so if you didn't have a stop mechanism, you ate so much ice cream, because we know with addiction we see compulsivities in almost every area, not just drugs and alcohol. It's food. It's sugar. It's gambling. It's everything. Sex. It's yeah. everything. Yeah. So that. You know, once we help break that down for young people, and we do, we do a whole presentation on the brain science of addiction, kids, 16, 17, and then we play kind of a Jeopardy game where we have them identify how many of these characteristics do you think you meet uh, and tie it to to sort of a, almost a game show format. Almost without exception, kids are like, I don't have a problem, or like, wow. Like when I look at that criteria, I met that criteria two years ago. Yeah. 
And I think it's so helpful. And, that, you know, the people that, that I deal with, a lot of times it's a family or a friend, and they really resist accepting that it's a brain disease because if they do, then they can't put the blame on the person. And, you know, blame and shame, that really, I've never seen that be beneficial in any type of therapy. Have you? No, no, it's not. Yeah, I mean, the shame, we know with the work of Brene Brown that the malady of substance abuse and mental health is that it's a vicious cycle that I use and I feel shame and I don't want to feel that shame. And so I use some more and I feel more shame and that cycle, you know, really kind of continues and it's a vicious cycle. And so we know the role of shame, you know, is huge. And I think for sure that, um, you know, we still, I, I go back to the stigma, right, of substance abuse. And, you know, it it is an, it is a difficult concept to, because if you have other brain diseases, um, the behavioral uh, presentation of that disease isn't as personal, right? Right. Um, so, so if I'm a mother with a, a child that's addicted, then it's easier it's harder to recognize that as a medical condition because they're stealing stuff from me, you know, or they're, you know, creating things in my life that are very personal. And so I, I, I don't, I don't judge people that are in the thick of it and say, this is just personal choice. Now, sometimes people get confused, right? With the brain disease model that, okay, so whatever, a person does, then they're not accountable for that behavior. No, no, uh -uh. that's not at all. And I think you can speak to that. Yeah, you're accountable. Once you understand what you're dealing with and once you start to enter into the treatment, it's not about accountability or it's not about holding people accountable. It's about the recognition that most people, in my belief and your belief, I believe, didn't choose it. They didn't wake up and say, at 13, I'm going to become addicted, and I'm no. going to spend my life, like, destroying other people and destroying my own life. That wasn't a personal choice or a moral failing or a characteristic of weakness. It's a complex set of circumstances that includes a medical model that helps them understand and and. and once we understand that with, within the context of a medical model, then we have a treatment plan. And then we don't have to personalize the symptoms. Like I'll have parents that will talk about, I don't think my son has a substance abuse problem. Well, what happened a couple of years ago after he started using substances? Well, he started punching holes in walls. And, you know, they will describe all the behavior that's born out of that, right? And I'll say, is it easier than to think of your son as a bad person 
Like, is it easier to think of him as just a wretched soul that stole his brother's money and took it out of his room? I mean, is or is it easier to think about the fact that maybe something bigger than choice is going on, that when he hit a crossroad, that there was a set of complex neurochemical reactions to that use that then created a set of behaviors that are now symbolic of who he is today. And with treatment, those set of behaviors could go away. And once I break it down like that, you know what I mean? Then it becomes a little bit easier, right? To be able to say, yeah, it's not his moral failing or my moral failing. Um, this is more, you know, a set of brain neurochemistry that can be treated. And people have a, once they wrap their arms around that, I think that they, there's so much science behind it. Oh my gosh, I was going, checking out at the grocery store the other day and there's a Time Magazine, Brain, right there on the checkout. So the brain is becoming really part of your everyday life and you hear about it on the news and it's everywhere. I think once people understand everything you do, you don't do how well you do it, it all depends on how that brain is wiring and firing, how well it's working. You know, are you getting the right amount of energy to the right part of the brain at the right time? Is the brain sharing the right amount of information? Is the timing, <clears throat> is it too fast? Is it too slow? All of that. I mean, if that brain is too fast, you think somebody's going to be real impulsive? I know they are. So it's all about what's going on in the brain. And while I'm talking about the electrical activity, the chemical synapses, the dopamine that we mentioned earlier, the serotonin, all of those, it all comes down to how that brain's wiring and firing. And what I've seen for a lot of times people with addiction, they, their diet is terrible. And where do neurotransmitters come from? They come from the gut. Your gut's your second brain. I talk about that in my book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. So you have to make some lifestyle changes. And I think left on your own, it's really difficult to figure it out. I, I think that's so true. We can even look at, you know, we can go out of, of course, the addiction field and look at, the implications of the brain and, and all sorts of, um, all sorts of, of disorders. And, you know, we look at depression, for instance, and anxiety, and we look at circadian rhythms and we look at the way that the brain, the, the factor of sleep and how that contributes to, um, depression and, and, some other disorders and how important it is for the brain to get rest. And without that rest, um, you know, it's, it's at a large disadvantage and we know that that's a chemical disadvantage. And so we can look at other disciplines of science and the brain study to understand the implications for addiction treatment. And I do believe you that, that we've come so far and, accepting that except you know that like with anything right there's still you know people in in all all the different fields and and some in the scientific community that are still 
um, less willing to acknowledge the brain science of addiction. Um, and, and, you know, that informs policy. And, and so I, I am more optimistic today, you know, some of the work of Kevin McCauley and, um, you know, again, having a champion uh, that oversees, you know, NIDA and, and understanding and her understanding the brain science. And so I, I think, you know, I want to believe that we've come a long ways, like a lot of different things. Um, and I know today, you know, probably even before the pandemic, you know, there was a, a really a national spotlight, especially on opiate addiction. Um, and so we got, you know, we were having more discussions about addiction and that was like amazing to me, especially in my community. And we, we had more, um, innovative responses and we saw the trends start to diminish a little bit. And now, as you know, with the pandemic, um, we're, you know, we're in our community and in many communities, we're at all time high because the other part of treating addictive disorders and mental health is people feel alone. And they don't have that sense of connection because often drugs and alcohol will limit the brain's ability to be in partnership with other people, you know, because those drugs alter the way that we are in social relationships. And so when we introduce people to recovery uh, through, again, using a clinical approach, uh, educational approach, and then we utilize the 12-step approach to help people get reconnected with a community that supports a new belief system and helps them take away the stigma and the shame. And so, you know, with the 12 steps, we see a lot of young people, and of course, a lot of people in general, but especially our young people, adolescents, and young adults that feel a sense of connection and value again, and they don't feel alone and they don't feel like they're bad people. You know, if you look at the 12 steps of AA, they really have a roadmap to help people heal. They do. Yeah, we take that work of Brene Brown and say, you know, healing shame is one of the most important interventions in working with folks that have substance abuse and mental health. If we know that, then, then how do we heal shame? Well, we heal shame through purpose, through service and through helping make up for the damage that we did. And in those 12 steps are contained all of those ideas. Well, I know you have the 12 step program in the Inbalance Academy. And when we come back from break, I'd like to talk more about that and, and really uh, understand because you take a very comprehensive approach. And I think that's what's needed. You've got to reach these kids. You're reaching out to 13 to 17 year olds and their families that need help. And that's when I see the brain as being so vulnerable because it's the brain's not fully developed until you're in your mid to late 20s. So you're using the amygdala, the emotional center, to make decisions. We'll be back 
after these messages. Close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling 903-287-0747. Many doctors suffer from cacography or bad handwriting skills. But as a nurse, I can tell you they might need to pay a little more attention to what they write on a patient's chart. During the course of a long shift, oscillating doctors have unintentionally written some pretty funny things on patients' charts. I thought I would share a few of these bloopers with you. One doctor wrote, The patient has been depressed ever since she began seeing me in 1983. Another doctor indicated that the patient refused an autopsy. One chart said that the patient was numb from her toes down. Another patient apparently stated that she had been constipated for most of her life until 1989 when she got a divorce. And my personal favorite, the patient was in his usual state of good health until his airplane ran out of gas and crashed. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back and we're talking about some pretty important topic right now because in the last six months, we have seen addiction on the increase. I mean, if you just look at numbers, if you look at the amount of dollars spent on alcohol, sales in the United States, they've greatly increased. Domestic violence has increased. All of that makes us more vulnerable. And people need to understand that there is a therapeutic approach that that you can take. And in 2004, you started the Inbalance Academy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that like a therapeutic boarding school? That's correct. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Tell me about it. Well, you know, it's it's super interesting because I started the model for it. I was a grad student and I was in my last semester and I was sitting in my um, direct practice class and I was doodling, which is inappropriate because there's a pretty, um, we had a professor that was, was quite excellent and quite you know, I, truth be told, I should have been really focused on what she was teaching us. And I was sort of doodling and the person, one of the students next to me asked me what I was doodling. And again, this was in 91. And I said, I'm, I'm doodling a schedule of a, a therapeutic program I'm going to open up in about 15 years. So the professor kind of caught the exchange and said, you know, Mr. Brasso, you know, what's more important than my lecture. And I was apologetic as I should have been. And so she pressed the issue and I, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I should be focusing on this class, but I'm focusing on a model that 
I want to introduce when I have the opportunity to, to really look at how we treat the whole adolescent person that has substance abuse and mental health. And so she, you know, so it turned into, well, why don't you come up and talk about it? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So, you know, I, I came up and talked about it. But in 2004, I had developed the model and um, I was a clinician, a clinical social worker. Um, people ask me all the time, you know, did you use 12 steps uh, in that model because you're in recovery and got sober? Um, uh, and the answer is no. I don't, uh, as a as a, a decision based on myself as a father and myself as a professional, in 97, I, I have not uh, had a drink or done anything that's mind-altering because I felt like I had a responsibility to the folks that I serve. But the 12, but, but my background's in developmental psychology, and so I knew that for our young people, one of the modalities that we would use would be 12-step recovery because when those young people wake, you know, go home after therapeutic boarding school and it's Friday night and we're just saying, hey, you know, choose not to use drugs or alcohol and just stay home and hang with your parents, it's going to lead to high levels of relapse. And so we have to, I wrote an article one time, and uh, it's called Replacing a Culture with a Culture, and it's actually based on my work with gang subcultures. And uh, so we have to help young people, not just tell them there's this community out in the world and, and it's been the most successful community uh, that, and go you know, sit in a room and sort it out. In my opinion, we have to do a much better job than that. We have to mentor them in the, all the facets of this community and how powerful it can be. The literature, the, the meetings, the family meetings, the Al-Anon groups. So it's more than just saying for a, a student in Balance Academy, hey, go to a meeting and figure out if it works for you, it's we're building a community so that when they return home, that community is very familiar to them and there's no threat in that community. Uh, they don't have to feel, uh, and what I mean by threat is anxious about walking into a room and not knowing the language and not knowing the traditions because AA has done a, a beautiful job of saying we have traditions and we have culture that celebrates being abstinent from drugs and alcohol one day at a time. The other pillars that I well understood was as a clinician that we had to be clinically sophisticated. So we had to understand the underpinnings of those choices. What drives the engine that leads a young person to decimate his life? Um, and go into the rabbit hole of drugs and alcohol. A lot of our kids were student body presidents. They were star football players. Um, they were functioning at a pretty high level. So we know that, Lee, clinically, that, you know, those kids uh, have histories of trauma. They have histories of being bullied. They have histories of, of uh, you know, family discord. 
So I knew that we have, so we have nine clinicians that are, you know, cross-trained in many modalities, including trauma-informed care. Um, so that became a pillar. And then I know, you know, my own experience is that I have a learning disability that went undiagnosed, dyslexia. And so I grew up, you know, kind of thinking I was dumb and being told I was dumb. And so I really uh, decided early and often that people, uh, so that they wouldn't recognize that I couldn't learn like other kids could learn, that I would just act out. And so that was my grade school experience. Um, I dropped out of high school, and and that came with lots of other problems. And um, so I knew that, you know, by the grace of God, my my brother kind of took me under his wing and said, "Hey, you're you're not um, dumb. You just learn differently." And so let's try this again. And so anyway, that that. I was inspired to do college through my volunteer work and having somebody say you need to be educated in order to really make this your life profession. And and so our academy has a school that can both treat, you know, kids that have dis, you know, learning disabilities and those kids that are brilliant, you know. So we we have a fully accredited high school, so I knew that school had to be an important part of it. And then we use a positive peer culture. You know, there's been some negative press, as there always is, sometimes about the treatment of children. Um, but, you know, I firmly believe that using a strength-based approach, which is a positive peer culture, which basically means it's really similar to AA, that you're your brother's keeper. So we empower kids to be the agents of change. And we do that in a really sophisticated way. So, you know, for instance, we, you know, don't use any um, uh, restraints. We don't use any behavioral interventions. Everything we do is through relationship and it works really well. Like kids really respond to it. And I don't want to, you know, sort of sugarcoat, you know, many of the kids that we treat have tried everything. I mean, they've, tried inpatient, outpatient, wilderness, you know, they've gotten in some, some very serious problems. And so by the time we get the chance to be of service to them, they've gone pretty far down the rabbit hole. So they're not showing up on our campus necessarily eager to lean into this proposition of change. And so the positive peer culture is inviting them to the table. It's not mandating. It's not like I'm bigger than you and you have to mind me. Um, it really is developing the relationship. I always talk about it being more of an inefficient modality, but a modality that is sustainable. So when our kids graduate, we have better outcomes than most because our kids have learned how to, if you will, sort of solve their own problems with the resources that they have in their community. And then kids find purpose, right? So purpose is a central element that has been lacking in the United States for our young people. Most people agree with that, that we're raising um, kids with a lack of purpose. So we have that positive peer culture. And then I saw great brain stuff with, you know, uh, brain science and, uh, in the treatment of young people with depression, anxiety, 
tied to equine, tied to animal, you know, in, in this case, equine and horses. And so we have a really robust equine program that develops that relationship and that self-regulation, and it becomes sort of a biofeedback of, of a sense that's 1,200 pounds. And so we have kids that are on horseback and learning about horses five hours a week, and they're really becoming skilled riders, but they're really developing that sort of internal sense of calm and peace and relationship. So we have 38 horses and, you know, we're on 140 acres and it's really a beautiful setting up by Tombstone, Arizona. You fly into Tucson, then we're about an hour and 15 minutes from Tucson. And it's really the perfect setting to just help kids find their way and then again, we have a very robust family program um, and nutrition and fitness and brain, you know, uh, helping heal the brain by having a robust activity, physical fitness and nutrition so that they sleep at night, you know. And then we have a psychiatrist to look after those kids that, you know, need that piece as well. So it's a fairly comprehensive approach, the positive culture, 12-step recovery, the school, the equine program, and the clinical. So we don't, we hope not to miss anything. Well, I'm glad to hear you mentioned the sleep piece because sleep is our foundation. And, you know, all day long, you've got these neurons and dendrites and they're firing away and they're creating toxic waste. And that toxic waste stays in the brain. The only time that these little glial cells can come out and clean that mess up is when you're asleep. So in sleep is your found sleep's foundation, diet, exercise. I mean, that brain may only weigh three pounds, but you've got to free, you've got to feed it and you've got to take care of it. You know, and I thought of a client that I worked with while listening to you. And it was interesting because this guy was on the top of his game top sportsman stop school and he gets hit he's in a car accident and he gets a horrible concussion and he's just got so much brain fog so he was put on Adderall to help him focus and it really it did help him focus but he got addicted to Adderall and stop and think about that situation here's a young man that was just Thank you, you know, thank you, Lord, I'm grateful, everything's rocking and rolling my way. Boom, out of the, the blue, he gets hit by a car, or his car gets hit by a car. That puts him in a terrible spot. So he comes in wanting to get back on his game, and he starts taking Adderall under a doctor's supervision, and he gets addicted to it. And that addiction went on for almost two to three years. And he's been in, in and out of, of different recovery systems. He's in a, a sober living house right now. And it's amazing. He's told me that neurofeedback is his new Adderall. And I said, well, I don't know. If I, I don't know if I like that, you know. But what it is, is but it's given the brain what it needs. And, but, you know, I was so, when I first met him, just looking at him, his eyes were so droopy. I mean, I could see, I I hate to say this, but I could see why he took the Adderall to get through the day. Because his brain had just, uh, 
traumatic brain injury, it changes everything. His level of fatigue, and boy, when I did a brain map on him, low voltage brain, I'm like, oh boy, all blue. But you start giving that brain that energy it needs, and I do it my way with neurostimulation and neurofeedback, and you do it your way with a lot of the therapies that we've talked about, and it, it gets that person where they need to be. So after they come out of the, the academy, is it like, thank you so much, you're ready to go on with your life? Well, that's a great question and a couple points that, you know, kind of make about the Adderall study and lucky that young man found you is, is certainly there's a place um, for psychopharmacology and um, in the way that we approach things, but not the place that we have it now. So, you know, I think kids to be placed on any medication, you really have to have a thorough assessment. So we've gotten used to, you know, uh, sending a kid, you know, and again, it's not an indictment on anybody. It's just, it's just the way that a lot of the insurance works is, you know, you send a kid to a psychiatrist and he gets maybe 45 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, and there's a quick diagnosis and then off he goes. So, you know, I feel sad for a lot of young people because they were probably misdiagnosed and put on meds that, you know, ended up doing a lot of harm. So we do really take that sort of, again, we have a medical director. Uh, he's just phenomenal. He's just got like, you know, he, he, he knows how to, you know, prescribe meds, obviously, but he really wants to look at you know, that whole person process and, you know, and, and not just, you know, kind of jump into a medical solution. So I want to, the other idea that I know you're well aware of and that I think your audience needs to be aware of is that the concept of synaptic pruning. So, you know, you know, brain volume can't, can't grow as an adolescence and, and the brain starts to trim off the areas that it doesn't need um, because it can't fit everything it needs in that cavity, right? So we have this process. So, you know, kids, you know, that are being exposed to all these negative influences that come with the drug subculture, you know, crime and, and all those kind of things that, that, that can happen as a course of, of that those choices, you know, think of what's happening to the brain. Like, you know, we, we have different times in our development where synaptic pruning, for instance, after we acquire language, then the brain no longer needs as much as that language uh, acquisition uh, uh, brain development, right? So it starts to trim away the things that we don't no longer need. We're, and, and so it's such an important time, that period of adolescence, to help young people um, be surrounded by things that are going to help them grow as a person in healthy ways and help their brain grow in a healthy way. So what happens, you know, when you talk about what happens after the academy, um, I folks will have some discussion and in some cases some disagreement about 12-step recovery in adolescence. And 
it's just because they're not informed. Probably folks that don't work in a day in and day out, um, they'll say it's an adult program. Kids can't understand the concepts of it. Um, all that is just fundamentally not true, and it, and, it, and it does what we do often. We underestimate the capacity of young people. So they can understand the concepts. And so what happens at the academy, I started as an outpatient program. So Imbalance was an intensive outpatient program that started in 96. So I kind of started to coin Stephen Covey's phrase, start with the end in mind. So when I started developing the model for Imbalance Academy, I started with what are the key ingredients to help young people when they return home? So what needs to be in their aftercare? And how do we build that into every aspect of the program? Because I was really frustrated as an outpatient provider, kids coming out of programs and not being prepared for the transition and having high rates of relapse. And so, you know, we start the transition in balance like from day one, and that's a 12 to 14 month program, Lee. So what do I mean by that? We're introducing kids to 12-step recovery on day one because, you know, it's available, it's free, it's everywhere in the world. We've taken kids to meetings in South Africa in the worst, uh, some would say some of the worst uh, slums in the world uh, next to Mumbai, and we had a community center that was just kind of a 10 shack. And we did a 12 step meeting in that community center with local teenagers and they were not talking English and our kids didn't understand the local language, but they all understood what they were doing. And it was uh, like amazing. So we start by helping young people understand what's gonna be necessary when you leave Imbalance Academy to feel supported if you decide, and we hope you do, to not use drugs and alcohol one day at a time for a while. We hope that that while turns maybe into a lifetime, but at least for the you know three or four years after the Academy of major brain development, you know? so. You know, we're just asking young people to consider this option of total abstinence one day at a time, uh, you know, when they leave us. And we're going to help families understand that. They'll go on home visits, you know, starting at six months all the way through the program till it's in. We're prescribing what happens on those home visits, leave so that they have resources set up in their communities. We have a certain number of our young people that will transition to our young adult program in Tucson, which is then sort of teaching them how to how to take on, you know, young adulthood, how to take on college as a young person that uh, doesn't use drugs or alcohol and is in recovery. Um, so whether they're going home, whether they're going to our transitional living program, we are really setting the families up for success. And therein lies hope helping the young person be set up for success so they never really feel all alone in taking on the challenge of living in a society that really embraces drugs and alcohol and deciding that you don't want to live as a person that uses drugs and alcohol. 
Well, and um, what that, I that's hear. That's a tall order. That is a tall order. And what I hear a lot from some young people I've worked with with addiction is, is you know what? I don't know how, how to have fun if I'm not drinking or smoking or, you know, everything I've been doing to have fun is centered on this. And, and I know we've only got like about four minutes left and I know you can't tell them how to have sober fun in less than four minutes, but take a shot at it. We're going to teach them in the Academy. We're going to teach them how to have sober fun and, um, you know, we do outings all the time and we, we go to, you know, tournaments that are 12 step centric where nobody's using. We go to big conferences where people are celebrating the spiritual principles of 12 step recovery. So I said to a kid yesterday, Lee, that if we can't teach you how to have fun in recovery, then we have failed you. You know, um, because he's brand new student at the academy, he's wondering why he should do this, and that exact thing came up, which I understand. Um, and so it, it really is introducing them and introducing families to principles of community-based activities that can be fun and teaching kids that they can enjoy hiking, they can enjoy, you know, things that they haven't done for a long time, equine. Physical fitness is a huge one for kids that when they leave the academy, we have so many of our kids that get inspired. We have a big CrossFit gym on our campus, and kids see the physical manifestation of their recovery choices, and they start to feel better about themselves. So it is really uh, helping take them to places where people are celebrating recovery and having fun And then kids believe us. We have a kid that's been touring for seven years in sobriety. One of our alumni, he's going to come out. He's he's got some uh, acclaim. He's had some success in the music industry. He's going to come out and play for the kids. And he's the only one in his band that's sober. And he's the first one to say, I have more fun than any of those guys. Wow. Every city I go to, I have a 12-step community. That is a great note to end on. If people, we've got just a, a little bit of time, Patrick, if people want to learn more about the imbalance continuum of care, how do they find you? What do they do? Yeah, if they just click that in, you know, Google search, they're going to be able to find, um, we have, I, I think, a, uh, I believe it's, you know, well-articulated website. I didn't have anything to do with it, so I can brag about it. But just Google, you know, imbalanced continuum of care, and you're going to see all the different offshoots of our programs. And it's a fairly comprehensive um, depiction of all the things that we offer as part of imbalance. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today, and and I think a knowledge your knowledge base that you built working the streets, you know, before you ever really got involved on a clinical level, and the way that you've evolved the business from starting with counseling to the Inbalance Academy to transitional living to including the alumni, what a great model. And I think that people need to know there's a community that you can reach out to. Whether it's a community of sobriety or or self-care, because that's one thing. If I were going to close, I would say self-care is self-love, and it's not a bottle of wine. 
It's really tapping into your inner self and reaching inside, taking a few minutes to be grateful and thankful for all that you have. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,